On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the latest discoveries in the study of hope and optimism, intellectual humility, and free will at templeton.org. The pandemic memoirs began almost immediately, but now comes another kind of offering, a searching look at the meaning and possibilities in the racial catharsis to which the pandemic in some sense gave birth and voice and life. Tracy K. Smith co-edited the book, There's a Revolution Outside, My Love, Letters from a Crisis. She joins me together with Michael Kleber Diggs, who contributed to that work. It is a reflection inward and outward, backwards and forwards, primarily of the black experience of 2020 and all that the murder of George Floyd came to mean. But the 40 voices in this volume span an array of BIPOC lives and perspectives, from Edwige Danticat to Reginald Dwayne Betts, from Lely Long Soldier to Ross Gay to Julia Alvarez. This conversation with and between Michael and Tracy is soft and fierce and wise, and it's a privilege to be part of, along with the gift of their writing. It wasn't that I wanted to let go and sink. It was that it was hard to keep my head above water and carry my stone at the same time. I wanted a place to rest, okay? I wanted to float just for a little while. Dear Black America, we are many things, aren't we? We are hair, God, yes, we are hair, and song and memory. We are a language so deep it has no need for words. And we are words that faint, dart, and wheel like birds. Like James Brown, we feel good. Like Fannie Lou Hamer, we are sick and tired. We are fearsome, we are fire. Like God, we are that we are. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Michael Kleber Diggs teaches creative writing through the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop and at colleges and high schools in Minnesota. He lives, as do I, in St. Paul and is just publishing his first book of poetry. Tracy K. Smith is a professor of creative writing at Princeton University, author of wonderful books, a former poet laureate of the United States, and a former guest on this show. So, Tracy, let's just start. You co-edited this book, and, you know, I'd love to start with this, and maybe these are your first lines, but certainly early in the introduction that you wrote that you entered the summer of 2020 with this feeling of having come to a crossroads. And you said with that came the sensation of being pulled simultaneously forward and backward in time. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, this year amplified a feeling that I have had for some time that history is upon us. History is, you know, not only on our heels, but maybe it's it's catching up and and we're feeling it, its hand against our back. Um, and during the pandemic, witnessing so many acts of violence against unarmed black citizens, which is nothing new, yeah. but 
almost feeling as if all of America was held in place in a theater watching this happen and reacting together amplified all of the the feelings of grief, anger, and determination to muster some sense of an adequate response and a sense of okay how do we how do we move forward with a different momentum something other than this rote historic pattern playing itself again and again yeah. you know i had like everyone i had months to sit and and turn that question over in my mind both in language and in terms of the inevitable emotions that were you know also upon me yeah. and um to learn something new from my own vocabulary for, you know, language, but also for feeling. And I just had this desire to do that together with everyone else in America Mm -hmm. and see if we might, you know, get somewhere. Yeah. So, Michael, you are in Minneapolis. One of the things you wrote, you say... Being born black in an anti-black country is like being handed a stone at birth, an object you have to carry and can never throw. Um, and that one of the effects of George Floyd's murder, at least in the beginning, you had a sense that people saw that, partially, that you felt seen, not fully seen, but differently seen. Yeah. Seen in a different way. And I was, at the time that I was writing that, I was thinking a lot about how do I capture this moment. I was thinking about myself in this place, uh, the Twin Cities, which is my home and an area that I love in so many ways. Um, but thinking about myself in this space and feeling hyper-visible at times and invisible other, at other times, but definitely during that summer, during last summer, feeling hyper-visible, feeling noticed, mm-hmm. and and also spending some time reflecting on how I was being noticed and what people wanted to communicate to me in their interactions, often without words, but just, hmm. you know, the smiles, the, the, I described them, I think, as over-eager smiles. Yeah. Uh, and... and I was thinking about that and and how that over time can start to dissipate as we get back to regular routines. Mm -hmm. Um, Something you wrote, you said, 15 days after George Floyd's death, a familiar hopelessness set in. As I walked Ziggy and Jasper around the neighborhood, many passersby viewed us with concern. The overeager smiles of late May and early June, smiles communicating concern for my well-being, smiles that said that you are welcome here, succumbed to a familiar consternation. Suspicious eyes, some friendliness, but also long, wary looks from people I've lived among more than 10 years now. Steps grew leaden and sad. You see, I am carrying this stone. There's that stone again. And then you turned to a song called Chocolate and started dancing in the streets yeah. regardless of all of that. Right. Would you read, um, you have your book with you? I do. Okay, page 44. Starting at that paragraph on page 44, more than anything, 
and then to the end of the chapter. Sure. More than anything, one line in chocolate stood out for me. It's a line connected to a life preserver that arrived when I felt I couldn't tread water much longer. When I was tired and felt alone, like there was no safe harbor in sight. It wasn't that I wanted to let go and sink. It was that it was hard to keep my head above water and carry my stone at the same time. I wanted a place to rest. Okay? I wanted to float, just for a little while. There's the line that says, this song is just for you, Michael. All my songs are for you and for us, people born into it and people who opt in. The line always arrived right on time, whenever Big Boy said, making music for the people that be feeling me. My pulse rate elevated. My heart beat hard, vibrant, and alive. We are vibrant and alive, see? He said, making music for the people that be feeling me, and I had the same thought every time. Chocolate is a club song, and I am in the club. Chocolate is pro-joy, even though our club is bittersweet. We dance anyway. We deserve pleasure. I say it out loud. I can bring the club with me wherever I go. We can spark a revolution just by walking down the street. The club is a place where I belong. I'm never alone, I realized. The club is with me wherever I go. Just say a little bit about the song. Just bring others into that experience. Yeah, so first, I'm prone to obsessions. <laughs> the the app I used to listen to music gave me the data at the end of the year, and Chocolate was my most listened to song, and I listened to it something like 86 times. So that's so within my character. Like I'm like, oh, I'm really crazy about this thing, and I'm just not going to stop listening to it forever. <laughs> and I realized at a certain point that I, I was really relying on it. I just was sad and, and angry and frustrated and disappointed and deeply concerned. Um, the pandemic had its own weight. I think we had entered the pandemic with a measure of fatigue from, shall we say, a difficult presidential term. Hmm. And um, my daughter was home from college and she was dealing with the stress of the pandemic and a lot was going on and it was just heavy. and. I had these two dogs who needed to go out all the time. And every time we went out, I would put the song on. Um, whenever I listened to it, I just felt reminded that we're going to be okay. I uh, would feel a lightness that I just needed to have. And um, it's so joyful and silly in ways. But, but it's also got these phrases that seem amenable to other interpretations. Um, right. And, and so I just kept kind of connecting to, like, what's going on here? Like, what's really at work? Is this just a club song and I'm overdoing it, which would be completely in character as well? But Or, or is there more to it than that? And I just started to think with art made by black artists, there's always, I think, a subtext. There's always a context. And um, within that, I just couldn't help myself, though, feeling light and wanting to dance. And um, 
kind of in a way giving myself permission to do that even though I you know I don't feel totally comfortable dancing in my neighborhood um, <laughs> this is Minnesota but that's right all. that's right like how can I you know and also like how can I call more attention to myself but I just didn't also feel right not dancing you ever find yourself stuck in between the rock and the dark place sleep for a dream I'm hard and I'm heartless king without a queen got iceberg shorts for me we ain't throwing rice I'm just throwing deep and making music for the people that be feeling me feeling me all the hills see Tito's we go hard in the paint like a like a free throw the song is just so compelling in that way and I needed to dance and to feel light and to be joyful and to be conspicuously joyful. Um, and I understood that anyone who saw that might think it was unusual or misunderstand it. And then I realized it's not for them. It's not for them. It's for me. Hmm. Um, and there was something important, I think, about also giving myself permission to to be myself wherever I am. That makes so much sense to me, Michael, and it's so amazing. I've loved that essay, um, but it's so beautiful to hear those lines in your voice. Mm. And one of the things that you do that I think great poems do, great literature does, is to alert us to spaces and distances that we may not have been aware of. And so you bring in that, that really powerful and painful image of the stone, and yeah. then you talk about other, you know, white, the white awareness that this is your burden. But there's also, you know, the sense of joy that you bring in alerts us and potentially anyone watching to the reality that the burden is not, it's not blackness. No. It's the gaze that's directed toward blackness. Mm -hmm. There's a distance between the stone and, and the you. Right. And so the fact that the joy and the song allow you to make that space feel large, even just for the length of a dog walk or the length of those beautiful sentences, that is like you create the sense of joy in my body as I get to that moment in the essay. Mm -hmm. And I, I also have felt so powerfully a version of what you describe as needing to be my full black self in plain sight. And I think it's a direct result of the immense pressure and the willful blindness that, um, you know, sort of like surrounded us as black people for so long and wanting to push back against that, wanting to make the space not only um, larger, but also felt on the other side. And um, I, I, I feel like that's a really productive, I want to tell myself that the club that you're talking about um, is an old, old club, and it, it it's a productive union. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly it. And I... Tracy, I don't know if this is true of your experience as well, but I was raised at a time when a common guidance um, for black children was, you know, conduct yourself in a particular way, dress a particular way, act a particular way, and um, and you'll be received in a particular way yeah. if you dress and speak and act um, in a proper way people will see your humanity. Yeah. And um, I, I think that that message at the time 
was part of an effort to to have. I mean, this was shared with me by people who loved me and wanted the best for me and um, wanted for me a life free of adversity and racism and suffering. And I, I think we know now that that's that there's more to it than that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we are a complex and dynamic people. Um, there is no monolithic black experience. Um, and we are many things and we have many interests and disagreements and all of those types of things. And I do think I find myself sometimes performing feels a bit brisk, but it also feels terribly honest, kind of performing uh, within that tradition that I, that I that I grew up in, and uh, breaking free of that, uh, and you know, just acting the way I want to act in a particular moment, connected me to my humanity in a in a, in a more expansive way. Yeah, I totally understand that feeling, and I know that you know the assimilationist values. <laughs> that's what I would call them. That my you know, parents who were born in the 30s um, yeah. brought to my upbringing uh, have run their course as mm-hmm. I see it. I feel that the genius, resilience, and, you know, the, the vantage point of this, du- you know, the stone, as you call it, and, and the double consciousness that Du Bois calls it, I feel like those are really related concepts these things hold the solution to America's current crisis. Mm -hmm. These things can no longer be kind of like relegated to the margins if America wants to survive and evolve. And so I almost feel called to bring from that other large uh, space and and, and the other set of of capacities. Um, I feel called to bring that out into, into... dialogue into presence as a, as a tool, almost. Right. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with Tracy K. Smith and Michael Kleber Diggs, contributors to the new book, There's a Revolution Outside, My Love, Letters from a Crisis. And Tracy, I really feel like that's that's something that, that you're... I mean, it's a letter to black America. It's your, it's your chapter mm-hmm. in the book. I mean, it's interesting for me to hear you say that about the calling because this is an expression of that as you describe it. When I interviewed you before, when we sat together in New York City, you were the U.S. Poet Laureate. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were representing the United States of America, right? You were representing to all America. And this essay is your voice that I recognize. And there's an intimacy here. There's a tenderness and a fierceness that is you opening something else up. Um, I wondered if you would read this in two parts. Sure. And let's talk about what you're saying, and, and then we'll also do the second half. Okay. Dear Black America, 
We are many things, aren't we? We are hair. God, yes, we are hair. And song and memory. We are a language so deep it has no need for words. And we are words that faint, dart, and wheel like birds. Like James Brown, we feel good. Like Fannie Lou Hamer, we are sick and tired. We are fearsome. We are fire. Like God, we are that we are. I've always felt great freedom in the countless territories making up the realm of blackness. So many roots to wholeness. So many versions of joy. In blackness, I am local. In blackness, I am also distant kin, indigenous and immigrant at once, host and welcome guest. But in the country of America, the physical and psychic territory in which the physical and psychic domain of black America is situated, we are made to huddle together by force by the feelings of rage, threat, exhaustion, disappointment, and long-suffering that swarm us in this nation that loathes, fears, regrets, and cannot yet fully bear to accept the fact of us. And I hear my uncle saying, tell me something I don't know, with laughter in their throats. And it is that laughter, our laughter, that I cleave to. We revel in the depth and the flair, and the belief, and the secrecy of blackness. We are lucky to be who we are, and we know it. And I hear my aunt saying, Amen, and their deep intaking of breath, followed by a steep exhalation. Black, we revel in the resourcefulness, and the resilience, and the poise, and the know-how, and the grace, and the anger, and the prayers to all manner of beings that have kept us alive. Alive despite attempt after concerted attempt to annihilate us. Have you ever written all of that down before? <laughs> For no. a general audience? <laughs> No. Am I right that this is a product of 2020 and this it, it after? It is. Okay. I mean, I've I've felt this thinking rising in my in my you know like consciousness, and you know sometimes mm-hmm. I I have prefaced a poem, a Civil War poem that I, I read many times during the laureateship, by saying you know something about the resilience that has you know prevailed despite all of these attempts at annihilation, but this is different, and what this is is I hope it's two things. It's me talking to us, me in the club, mm-hmm. and saying, we are so here. We are so prepared to keep doing this thing that we must do. Thank you. Thank us. And let's keep going. But it's also, I hope, an address that excludes a white reader, but invites the white reader to observe and listen and eavesdrop and reflect. Yeah. And I feel that, you know, this is what, this is the the angle that so much of my current poetry has kind of adopted, not necessarily strategically, but because this is where my head is. This is where my, my, my heart is right now. As a black person in America, as anyone who's not white in America, you know what it feels like to be the unintended audience of something and to have to bend your ears in a certain way to, um, 
accept and, and deal properly with a statement that doesn't, isn't intended for you, but that implicates you in some way. This is a skill. Hmm. And this is a skill that it's time for those in the community of whiteness to embrace. Um, because like I said, I think the salvation of our, of our culture, and I don't really think that's an exaggerated term, depends on that kind of um, expanded awareness of self, of place, of where we are, and what we're doing here together. Yeah. And, and who we are, right? Yeah. That larger we that we must also make real in a completely new way. Yeah. That, I mean, that includes all of us. Right. But is that, is that okay? Is that all right? I think I, that's okay. Yeah. But what it also means is if we is all of us, it's not what you've thought it was all yeah. this time. Yeah. 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 We have to remake that who we are, what that, what that means mm-hmm. in every way. I think that's exciting work, mm. but I know it's also threatening to many people in, in different, for different reasons, um, because it's work that's, that's saying power needs to be rethought and we can, we can get somewhere we haven't yet been, which is also, you know, exciting, but I, I can understand how that might be frightening. Um, but we know where we have been and it's none of us is willing to go back there. You know, no one who um, understands the full extent of the violence, pain, suppression, etc. that the past has been characterized by is going to willingly go back there. And so the we needs to kind of shift gears. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm thinking also about how we can't talk about our resourcefulness and resilience without acknowledging how we acquired it. Mm-hmm. And when I think about we in, in the most collective way and the community that so many of us are working toward and some of us are afraid of, um, that history just feels so vital to getting to where we want to be. Um, to acknowledging that, to seeing it, to understanding how it affects us in the present, both in terms of our structures and institutions, but also in our in our bodies. Yeah. In in in, you know, not to overplay it, but in what we're asked to carry, what our parents were asked to carry in their parents, and and how that arrives with us to where we are right now. Mm-hmm. It's funny, you um, you know, when we think about it as, you know, what all of these generations that have made us possible have been carrying, it goes from being a burden to being a birthright, right? It goes, it goes from being um, this, this extra labor to being this, um, I don't know, like a toolkit, a psychic and spiritual and actual toolkit um and it's that you know like the spectrum of the metaphor that is really interesting to me america has been very eager to just look at the two ends of the spectrum and and not to dwell on um the the nuance the subtlety the transformation the evolution that sits between 
burden, and freedom. Mm -hmm. But there's something so liberating about actually being open and vulnerable to the painful, real reality of burden in all of its stages and what happens. Where is the moment where a shift occurs and freedom begins to be born? Mm -hmm. Like these are the instructive lessons that, um, that are really hard, but they seem essential to getting from 21, you know, 2021 to whatever, whatever future sits beyond that. After a short break, more with Tracy K. Smith and Michael Kleber Diggs. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with Tracy K. Smith and Michael Kleber Diggs. They have contributed to a stunning book of 40 BIPOC voices, looking inward and outward, backwards and forwards, from inside the racial catharsis at this pivotal time to be alive. You know, I, th- I think about the language of revolution, right? And the title of this collection is There's a Revolution Outside, My Love. Because, you know, Tracy, to that point of like how, how revolutions actually happen, I think this, there's a simplistic imagination that it's this one big uprising. But in fact, revolutions are messy and they go forwards and they go backwards. And it's, it's not like everybody's ever ready for a revolution or the, the path has been laid, right? And everybody sees it. Yeah. It's when like the lid is still on, but it's, it's slipped. And I think, you know, that's one way for us to start reflecting and what you've done in this book is start reflecting on the not being able to go back, even though we don't know what mean going forward means necessarily. And all of these things, all these words that have that you all have mentioned, you know, genius and resilience and tiredness and burden and joy. It's all there, but even with that tiredness and exhaustion, there's no going back. There's no standing still. Yeah. I mean, one of the beautiful things about li- listening to so many different voices in what are in some ways kind of like hot takes from this year or from last yeah. year yeah. is you get, to mo- you get to notice the moments or you, you get access to the moments when each individual feels something bubbling up that, that bubbles into clarity. Yeah, you know, and that can be that can be just held because it's been brought into language. Mm-hmm. 
would you read um, now the, the second half of your essay, A Letter to Black America? So starting sure. with, I see you in all your forms. Sure. I see you in all your forms, Black America. And I feel inside me a welling up of pride, reverence, and fierce protection. These threats we live subjected to, these ceaseless, baseless, unending, and uneradicated threats to our black bodies, spirits, and minds, do you know what I think they are? They are the grotesque and perverse ends to which a nation founded in shame has gone in order to avoid atoning for its crimes. They are defensive acts based on the belief that if we were allowed to dwell in our full power, what we would bestow upon this nation would be vengeance. But we know better, don't we? Look what we do with our voices. Look what we build with our hands. Look what we hold together with just our arms. Once a friend told me, I think we came to this earth to save it. Once I wrote in a notebook, maybe we are operating at a heightened spiritual frequency. Why else do we call it soul? Black America, I feel myself cradled by this thing we share. When I call it race, I'm told that race is false. When I call it a movement, I'm reminded that we have moved through countless other movements before now. When I call it culture, I feel the seams of the word splitting at the great moving heft it attempts to contain. We are here in America now as we have been in America always, when we are struck down and held back, when our bodies are corrupted by the violence of others, when we love, when, as now, we are trapped inside of finitude and flesh. During all of this, and then some, Black America, we are agents of the eternal. One of the things that's been helpful to me through um, the challenges, the you know, debilitating angst and depression, but also the, you know, consternation of, of the past year has been um, trying to shift scales mentally. So if I'm dealing with uh, vexation in one context, I try and see if I can go above that and look at it from another point of view. And that's a habit that I think I've tried to make useful in real life because it's something that can, you can do in a poem. You can move from the grounded and the local to the cosmic instantly, and you can glean a new kind of insight or even power from that, that shift. And so I feel like that's, that's a part of the work that that, that piece of writing um, seeks to arrive at in a way, to say that yeah. we are doing many, 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 many more things than we, we might at any one given time remember that we're doing. Michael, I wonder what you're thinking. <clears throat> thinking a lot about multitasking mm. and and how it's simultaneously kind of 
ancestral and cosmic and rooted in something that's very deep and very connected to the earth and to our spiritual selves and also very present in the now, um, in, in this moment in time and in, in this context and how we'll need kind of all of those gifts as we do the work that we're going to do. I was also thinking about imagination hmm. and how we can't, I think, arrive at the future we claim to want. And, and, and honestly, that, that many of us do want. That we can't arrive at the future we want unless we imagine what that's like and how important it is to dream and to, to be bold in that dreaming not to contain it with policy specifics or practicalities, but just to really envision the future we want and then manifest that. Um, see the possibilities as limitless and orient ourselves toward liberation mm -hmm. and in a world where everyone's humanity is recognized without qualification or, or prerequisite. Yeah. In some ways, that's also a part of the story of this um, quarantine, because there are, for some people, there have been regions of this, you know, now more than a year, where the pressures that force us to, you know, like, do certain things in terms of work, obligation, some of those have eased up. And so there's this quiet space where choice comes in and yeah. we get to say, oh, what do I care about? Who do I care yeah. about? How do I, how do I like to be when nobody is, is demanding that I'm other, other than that, that version of myself. And so some of us are, are kind of like finding little glimmers of what that might look like, what that, um, living by choice, um, cherishing certain things that don't always have hold on our attention. We're getting a little bit of practice at that. And that also feels really relevant to the, the larger goals that we're also talking about. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today with Tracy K. Smith and Michael Kleber Diggs, contributors to the new book, There's a Revolution Outside, My Love, Letters from a Crisis. Tracy, I think you pointed at this a minute ago, and, and also I think both of you work with young people. And um, But it's, it's so, it is a shift in perspective, you know, not to diminish what is terrible and also what's been terrible about uh, what we've all gone through and how many varieties of that experience there are. And... There's something extraordinary, which I think maybe only now as we, and not everybody in the world, but we in this country start emerging from the pandemic, to be the generation of humans. I don't mean demographic, right? I mean this generation of all of us alive right now, asking these questions mm -hmm. that you're raising, seeing these things that so late, but are finally 
by enough people being seen, being taken in, if only that right now. It's exciting. <laughs> mm. I mean, this is the, the moment seeing, framing, thinking before the real bubbling starts, right? In some ways, or maybe, maybe we, can, we can backtrack to that. Um, that feels like a, you know, it's a heavy responsibility and it's also this amazing invitation to participate in something beautiful, yeah. transformative. I would love to just wind down. We're not going to wrap this up, but I feel like we've opened this up and um, just wind down by maybe each of you reading a poem or two that you would like to read that feels that you've written this year that feels consonant with this conversation or something that will add um, to where we've gone. Yeah. I'll, I'll go first if it's okay. Cause I'm really yeah. excited about just sinking back into Michael's voice. And um, I'm, I'm really excited about his book, worldly things. that's going to be coming out very soon. So um, I'll just read one of my own poems that extends from the kind of thinking I've been talking about. Um, it's called, we feel now a largeness coming on. Being called all manner of things from the dictionary of shame. Not English, not words, not heard, but worn, born, carried, never spent. We feel now a largeness coming on something passing into us. We know not in what source it was begun, but wrapped, we watch it rise through our fallen, our slain, our millions dragged, chained. Like daylight setting leaves alight, green to gold to blinding white. Like a spirit caught, Flame in flesh. I watched a woman try to shake it once from her shoulders and hips. A wild, annihilating fright. Other women formed a wall around her, holding back what clamored to rise. God, devil, ancestor, what black bodies carry through your schools, your cities. Do you see how mighty you've made us all these generations running? Every day, stealing ourselves against it. Every day, coaxing it back into coils. And all the while, feeding it and all the while loving it. Hmm. Thank you. Mm. Michael, is this book, Worldly Things, is this your first it is, poetry? Yes. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, what would you like to read from this? The Grove. Planted here as we are, see how we want to bow and sway with the motion of earth and sky. 
feel how desire vibrates within us as our branches fan out, promise entanglements rarely touch. Here are sweet rustlings. If only we could know how twisted up our roots are, we might make vast shelter together. Cooler places, verdant spaces, more sustaining air. But we are strange trees. Reluctant in this forest, we oak and ash, we pine, the same, the same, not different. All of us reach toward star and cloud. All of us want our share of light, just enough rainfall. Well, thank you both. Um, thank you for letting me and letting us also just experience the conversation between the two of you and, of course, your writing and what you have to say. I'm really grateful for this, and I'm very happy to have this space to put it out into the world. Thank you. Thank you. Tracy K. Smith is a professor of creative writing at Princeton University and the former Poet Laureate of the United States. She is co-editor of the book, There's a Revolution Outside, My Love, Letters from a Crisis. Michael Kleber Diggs contributed to that book and teaches creative writing through the Minnesota Prison Writing Workshop and at colleges and high schools in Minnesota. His debut collection of poetry is called Worldly Things. And here, in closing, he reads a final poem from that work. It's titled, Every Morning. Morning in that title is spelled M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Morning. Walking my neighborhood, I come upon a colony of ants busy at work. I take care not to step on any and miss them all then encounter up a ways a fellow traveler greeting the day. I am frightening her. No, she is afraid of me. Is she an introvert? Is she a neighbor? Is she just in from the burbs, from the country? Is she scared of the inner city? Am I the inner city? Is she racist? Shouldn't I be the wary one? Or is she a survivor, like me? It can't be what I'm wearing. Khakis, a blue and white checkered button-down shirt, and the nylon sandals I favor because they're comfortable. My feet can breathe in them. Dear friends, I am the nicest man on earth. And I want to shout, morning, but just then a weaver or carpenter, just then a pharaoh or fire or pavement, just then a little black ant struggles by, alone, alone. And in that moment, I want us to give ourselves over to industry, carry the weight of the day together, lighten it, 
I want to be part of a colony where I feel easy walking around, cool as the goddamn breeze, where I can breathe, build structures sturdier and grander than this. But the woman crosses to the other side of the street, and I do what I usually do. Retreat into myself as far as I can, then send out whatever's left. Project is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Lauren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Sheck, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Rodrigo Tuma, Ben Cott, Gotham Shrikishan, and Lily Benowitz. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The George Family Foundation, in support of the Civil Conversations Project. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.